Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey, Tech Buzzers. It was great seeing some of you at South by Southwest in Austin earlier this month. We hope you enjoyed our provocatively titled panel, Entrepreneurship in China, Will They Eat Your Lunch?, which was hosted, by the way, by our very own producer, Kaiser Guo. If you were there, you would know that we came down on the side of, meh, probably not. Not even in the field of artificial intelligence, where China is being hyped as having a huge data advantage. Because it's balanced out, by the way, by a much smaller B2B or enterprise software market, at least thus far. And our friend Olivia Wong from GenFund mostly agrees with us that the U.S. remains ahead in some key industries, such as semiconductors and biotech, which is not lost on the Chinese government, by the way, because if you look at the list of proposed companies to list on the Shanghai Technology Innovation Board that we covered in the last episode, those are the exact industries that are being promoted. Yep, just as a brief follow-up, in the nine companies that have been greenlit so far, there are no internet companies. No e-commerce, no fintech, it's all robotics, new materials, chips, and the like. All deep tech, but at an average starting target market cap of $1 billion, which is, by the way, what we predicted that they were going for, unicorn and near-unicorn valuations. And today, we have another company that's shooting for a billion-dollar market cap, but this one is the very opposite of deep tech. This one's as consumer internet and as e-commerce as it gets. E-commerce and some of its adjacent categories, by the way, such as the influencer marketing subsector that we're talking about today, would be areas in which we'd agree that China should be considered world leading. It's on a company that hasn't seen that much English coverage because it's pretty small, let's face it. But it's a clear leader in China's fast-growing sector of influencer marketing. It's called Ruhan, that's spelled R-U-H-N-N, and it's just filed for IPO a few weeks ago here in the U.S. on the NASDAQ. And because this is about a soon-to-be publicly traded security, just a disclaimer here. The information contained in this podcast is not intended to be and does not constitute financial advice, investment advice, trading advice, or any advice. You should not make any decision, financial investment, trading, or otherwise, based on any of the information we're presenting today without undertaking independent due diligence. And with that said, let's get started. The president's key economic team goes to China. Uh, after a whole night thinking, I say, I still want to do it. <laughs> Hi, everyone. We are Tech Buzz China by Pan Daily, powered by the Seneca Podcast Network. We are a bi-weekly podcast focused on giving you a peek into what's buzzing within the tech community in China. 
we uncover and contextualize unique insights, perspectives, and takeaways on headline tech news that don't always make it into English language coverage, so you can be smarter about the world of China tech. TechBuzz China is a part of Pandaily.com, an English language site that tells you everything about China's innovation. I'm one of your two co-hosts, Ray Ma, and I'm your other co-host, Ying Ying Lu. We'd like to acknowledge our partners, Deal Street Asia and Sub China, creator of the Sinica Podcast Network. In addition to TechBuzz, y'all can find Sinica, which covers current affairs, Nui Voices on Women, the business-oriented China Econ Talk, and the Taishan Sinica Business Brief from China's leading business magazine. Check those out, guys! As always, if you enjoyed listening to our podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes or whatever other platform you use. Thanks, Hangzhou Clay, Avery One Four Eight, D Bruce Wong, and John Lieb for your recent reviews. We love hearing from you. Today's episode is brought to you by the University of San Francisco. USF's new Masters in Applied Economics combines econ training with practical skills in data analytics, all geared towards helping you to understand and analyze today's new digital economy. Their curriculum covers skills like R and Python, machine learning and experimental design, plus topics like the economics of platforms, auctions, pricing, and competitive business strategy. To learn more about joining the Fall 2019 inaugural class, TechBuzz listeners can visit usfca.edu/techbuzz. So as we said, today's episode is on the name Ruhan, which is somehow spelled R U H N N in English, unlike the R U H A N phonetic spelling you'd expect, since we don't really know how to pronounce something with so many consonants. I mean, would you pronounce it like Ruhan, for example? That hardly seems auspicious. We are just going to be using its Chinese name throughout this episode. Yeah, who advised on that one? It seems like a pretty elementary mistake to make. But maybe the company has no plans for internationalization, because let's face it, it's got its hands full with China. So let's start off with some headline stats, shall we, Ray? Yep, Ruhan is China's number one KOL facilitator. For those of you who are not familiar with the term KOL. That stands for key opinion leader, or here in the U.S. we would call them influencers. For those of you who know a little Chinese, this is a little bit different from Wang Hong or people who are internet famous. While there is definitely overlap, KOL has its roots from the advertising industry, and is a bit more professional of a term that usually implies you are an expert, have a distinct personal brand, and you're ready to represent some business interests. The other difference is that while Wang Hong usually refers to people who are mostly known for their looks or possibly live streaming talents, you can be a KOL in a variety of subjects, such as business or books. This distinction is increasingly blurry, though, because let's face it: just like in the U.S., how everyone and anyone can call themselves an Instagram model or influencer, these terms and the concepts they represent are so new that they're still in flux and they're constantly being refined. For Ruhan, though, the KOLs they represent are mostly of one type: beauty and fashion. And as of filing time, the company represents 113 of these influencers. Of these 
there are three that are considered top-tier influencers, meaning they have sold more than $15 million of goods in the past 12 months. And there are seven who are second-tier, meaning they have sold between $5 and $15 million in the past 12 months. In total, Ruhan was responsible for about $330 million of gross merchandise volume, or GMV, in the last nine months of 2018. For that same period, that translates into about $125 million of net revenues, a gross margin of 33%, and net losses of $8 million or so. Loss-making, certainly. But is it just me, or because we've been looking at crazy, unprofitable Chinese companies like Neo, Meituan, and Pinduoduo, that I'm thinking here, this company's financials actually look pretty solid. Well, the losses have been widening, but from 2017 to 18, the net margin went from negative 7 to negative 10%, so pretty minimal compared to the accelerating losses we've seen in the on-demand or EV sectors, of course. But these are not comparable businesses, with the exception of Pindodo, which at least is still an e-commerce company, albeit a very different one. Unlike Pindodo, though, Wuhan is a much older company. Strictly speaking, it was founded by three gentlemen at the end of 2012 in Hangzhou, the home of Alibaba and the land of e-commerce and digital brands. Two of them worked in IT, and one was actually a venture capitalist. Back in 2012, you could already see that the Alibaba ecosystem was incredibly powerful, and that there were multiple very successful so-called Taobao brands, Taobao Pinpai, or brands that existed only on Taobao, that were making tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue each year. VCs at the time were rushing to get into these types of deals. It's kind of like the boom in direct-to-consumer, digitally native, vertical brands that we see in the U.S. today. It doesn't seem like a big deal today, but it kind of was. At the beginning of this decade, in China, there weren't that many trusted domestic brands. To be able to build a large business purely online wasn't trivial, and yet it was clearly working. But were there more effective ways to acquire customers and build a distinctive brand? I'm just guessing here, but based on the timing, the founders were probably seeing the effects social media was having in China, especially Weibo, which had launched just three years earlier. And Weibo's success gave them ideas on how to integrate the two. Weibo, or China's Twitter, created internet celebrities out of ordinary people and made marginally famous people into megastars. In comes one particularly savvy social media star, a girl by the name of Zhang Dayi, or Dayi. Confusingly, she puts herself as born in 1997 on Weibo, but apparently she's actually born in 1988, same year as me, making her one year older than Taylor Swift and almost a decade older than Kylie Jenner. She was a model for something like eight years, mostly for print media, and was by no means very famous. But she discovered her voice on Weibo, where she amassed a loyal following of about 300,000 fans by posting about fashion. She is far beyond that now, by the way, with about 23 million fans across all platforms. She's really popular, trust us. A lot of people don't know Ruhan, the company, but if you're a young female urban professional who's into fashion, you will know of Dayi. Her greatest asset, as Ruhan CEO Feng has pointed out, is that she is very quote-unquote sweet-looking and well-liked by girls. Like a very pretty but still very approachable girl-next-door look. 
At one point, she was referred to as the influencer who makes even more money than Fat Bingbing. But how did she get into the e-commerce business? Well, Ruhan's predecessor is actually a Taobao store called Li Beilin, founded in 2011 by the current Ruhan CEO and his wife, who's actually an influencer herself. The funny story here is that they met Da Yi because the wife Chen Sijia was trying to find a girl to model the clothes she was selling on Taobao, and she randomly saw an ad featuring Da Yi, thought she was super cute, and tracked her down. Anyway, their store swiftly made it onto the top ten, but traffic began to suffer when the landscape changed and Alibaba beefed up its product portfolio, effectively diverting traffic to other assets. Knowing they have to pivot their business model, the couple partnered with Da Yi on their first store called My Favorite Wardrobe in July of 2014. It turned out to be a massive success. Of course, back then they also had very little competition. Which explains why, just a few months later, in December 2014, the VC fund SAIF Partners invested in a Series A in Ruhan, and 10 months after that, followed up with a Series B. In 2016, Alibaba and others participated in a Series C of about 64 million dollars. Between the Series B and C rounds, Ruhan did something that probably wouldn't happen in the U.S. It listed on China's new third board. Which is, if you'll remember from our last episode, the only one in China where you can quote unquote list while still loss making. But it's not a very robust exchange. In fact, it's a very small, very illiquid, over-the-counter marketplace. That's right. That's why this Nasdaq offering isn't Ruhan's first IPO, strictly speaking. Likely to save on listing costs, Ruhan took over a shell company that was valued at just a million U.S. dollars. Immediately, the stock soared, and the company was valued at half a billion dollars. Ruhan delisted from China's OTC market in April of 2018, amid rumors that it was going to shoot for a U.S. IPO. Sensible decision, and the rumors are accurate. It turns out. Recall that the OTC market is really for micro, actually nano cap securities with an average market cap of less than 50 million dollars. So it really doesn't have the proper investor depth for a company the size of Ruhan. Well, that's the bullish reason. The bearish reason is that Chinese investors are not as hot on e-commerce companies as U.S. investors are, and they also really hate unprofitable companies, especially ones that have increasing losses. Ruhan was actually a little bit profitable in 2016 before turning unprofitable in 2017, although it also increased revenues by nearly 30 times. But by this logic, Ruhan was basically forced to delist, having no hope of raising further funds quickly and efficiently from the Chinese retail market. But by this time too, Ruhan had grown substantially in size, and it was by now large enough to at least be considered abroad. Chinese media have always claimed that the company is being forced to list because of its institutional investors, but they together only own about 25% of the company, at least prior to IPO. It's the CEO who owns over half, and Da Yi who owns 15% that together have majority control. Da Yi is also the current chief marketing officer of Ruhan. How did this happen? Well, she's very good at her job, like we've said, and it's really her success that's propelled not just Ruhan but the entire influencer e-commerce industry forward. Since starting from nothing in 
She's now on track to earn something like seventy million dollars of revenue for Wuhan annually. In 2016, during Taobao's live streaming event, she sold about three million dollars of goods in just two hours. By Singles Day of last year, she sold fifteen million dollars worth in 28 minutes, breaking all influencer records, leaving little doubt that she really is the top-earning KOL in Chinese internet. But her overwhelming success is also problematic for Ruhan. In the last nine months, Zhang Dayi's business still accounted for a decreasing share of GMV, ending up at forty-five percent, but an increasing share of revenue at almost fifty-four percent. In other words, more than half of revenues are coming from a single influencer. That is pretty bad revenue concentration. It's a double-edged sword for sure. And to keep her, she has the fifteen percent equity we talked about earlier. Remember. That's not what other KOLs are getting; they're getting a salary or a revenue split. Rohan's KOLs are paid anywhere from eight to thirty-five percent of operating cash flows or revenues, depending on the type of store they operate, such as whether the store is fashion or cosmetic. There is always the chance that as some KOLs become very popular, they might move off the platform or demand better terms, like Dayi has. It hasn't come to that yet. But you know the frenzy to lock up exclusive contracts with live streaming talent—that was one of the reasons behind the demise of Panda TV. Well, folks believe it could happen here as well. And there are just so many dangers with running a business that's so single celebrity focused. For one, Dayi can fall quickly to scandal. You know how last year she was called the Fan Bingbing of influencers because of her extraordinary popularity and money-making ability. Well, no one's saying that anymore because Fan Bingbing, who used to be the number one star in China, has fallen swiftly and completely last summer to allegations of tax evasion. So, that could happen to Daiyi. Who knows? I'm sure there's no shortage of competitors trying to bring her down. There is a lot of competition. The KOL economy in China has been growing at a breakneck pace of 180 percent per year since 2013. According to Ruhan's own perspectives, the largest and fastest growing segment is advertising, making up what looks to be about 60 percent of the revenue, followed by e-commerce at about one third, and the remainder currently mostly just virtual gifting. The data isn't consistent, though. Other reports stress that e-commerce accounts for most of the monetization of influencers, as high as 74 percent. That includes not just direct e-commerce like buying from their shops, but also e-commerce from live streaming, much like home shopping channels, but with the ability to interact. Chinese users, by the way, favor this type of content because video remains one of the best ways to get the most accurate feel for the product without seeing it in person. Either way, the most often cited market places the size of the influencer economy in China at more than fifteen billion dollars for 2018, or even as high as twenty-five billion dollars for 2018, if you believe Frost and Sullivan, and it's growing at forty-two percent every year. But that, as you already know, includes a good chunk of e-commerce, which is not typically included in the ten billion figures cited in U.S. research for global influencer marketing, as those tend to only include advertising. Either way, our point is that in terms of influencer marketing, China is huge and probably the largest market in the world. 
For Rohan, though, the bulk of its business is still writing on e-commerce. The company has 91 self-operated stores, 28 third-party stores, and 501 brands on its platform. These stats are almost triple what it had two years ago. What does this mean? Well, for the self-operated stores, Rohan has 25 KOLs from whom it quote-unquote integrates key steps of the e-commerce value chain, from product design and sourcing, online store operation to logistics and after-sales services. That's how it works with Dai Yi, for example. Dai Yi brings in the fans, the brand, but Rohan does a lot of the heavy lifting, such as helping design and then actually making the fashion and cosmetics being sold. And they also operate the stores, of course, handling returns and customer service and stuff like that. This is about 88% of its revenues. And here's where there's some differentiation between Rohan and other fashion brands. While Rohan admits to freely working with buyers and basically being inspired by runway designs, not unlike Zara and other fast fashion brands, it's got an even more efficient system for coming up with its own seasonal collections. That is, it uses its fans to help it figure out what will sell. Yes, for example, Daiyi will post a series of photos of herself in different outfits. And straight up, ask her fans to vote for what they like best. She will also collect information on what materials her fans prefer, as well as the price they're willing to pay. Armed with this information, she then works backwards with the Ruhan team to come up with what to sell, and then they spend a ton of time and money on promoting the goods, including what you've come to expect from influencers. Lots of video and photo shoots and exotic locales. And because Ruhan wants to push for lower turnaround times and less inventory risk to accommodate its customers, it tends to set lower order amounts, which, by the way, of course, is typically more expensive, but does make it more nimble for the company. How low? I don't know exactly, but comparable companies such as a popular Korean-themed fashion brand can have as low as only 600 pieces per order. Ruhan, by the way, is achieving about 30% gross margins in line with Zara, so not horrible. But this isn't Ruhan's only play. By 2017, Ruhan was also providing what it called platform services. This is basically where they work with KOLs and matchmake them with brands or other third-party e-commerce stores. Platform services are growing rapidly, but still only account for about 12% of total revenues. And what's interesting is that while Ruhan says it has 113 signed KOLs on its platform, only 25 were working under its full service model, which is actually a decline. From the last year, while the majority were active on its platform, I think it's pretty obvious why that's the case. It's extremely difficult to incubate mega KOLs like another Zhang Daiyi. But as the number of KOLs grow in China, and Weibo says there are over twenty thousand influencers with more than one million fans each on their platform now, so there's at least that many, and not all of them are going to be able to create their own brands. There's probably more growth in the advertising side, which is also more scalable since it's less operationally intensive. That's probably why the CEO has been on the record as saying, "We are not trying to make more Daiyis. We are just trying to be the best partner we can for successful influencers like Daiyi." 
It also helps answer one of the key criticisms that Ruhan, as an older internet company, yeah, I can't believe I'm saying it, but at six years old, Ruhan is an old soul in China. It doesn't get the new landscape of influencer marketing. The marketing channels that it's well versed in, mostly Weibo, are not reflective of the current time spent by youth these days. As analysts have pointed out, of the 150 million or so fans/slash followers Ruhan has across all its influencers and all platforms, about three quarters of that is on Weibo, with most of the rest on Weitao. By the way, as expected, about 80% of the fans are females and millennials. But Ruhan fans on other platforms, such as WeChat or Douyin, aka TikTok, are negligible. Yeah, take Daiyi for example. She has over 10 million Weibo followers, but only 150,000 Douyin fans. Granted, Douyin hasn't become a huge driver of e-commerce yet, but at 400 million Chinese MAU and an increasingly large share of user attention, what does it say about the management team at Ruhan that they're either unwilling or unable to crack the WeChat and the Douyin game? Well, it might be too early to judge them so harshly on that. Alice Daiyi herself is saying that she's taking Douyin very seriously and knows that her success on Weibo is not necessarily translatable to other platforms. She's willing to be very humble and start from scratch. And therein lies some of the differences between the U.S. and China. While social networking tools have changed quite a bit in both countries, the Chinese market has seen more iterations. Douyin launched e-commerce services last May, coupling short videos with shopping. And during last year's Singles Day, the top-selling influencer got over a hundred thousand orders, resulting in thirty million dollars of turnover. That's for the whole day. So Daiyi is still winning the battle on this one. Kuaishou, the other leading short video app, isn't far behind, and also announced upgrades to its e-commerce functionality in December. That's in comparison to Instagram, whose shopping feature has been rumored for months but only finally launched this last week. While we're in general pretty careful about not overhyping Chinese tech companies, it does seem that in much of e-commerce and especially when it comes to influencer marketing, the Chinese market is pretty advanced and at least on par with, if not more dynamic than what we're seeing here in the U.S. But don't take our word for it. We haven't had guests on the show for a while, but today we have Lauren Hellenan. Who is definitely well versed in the Chinese influencer economy? Lauren, could you please introduce yourself to Tech Buzzers? Hi, my name is Lauren Hallinan, and I am a Chinese social media marketing expert focusing on influencer marketing, live streaming, and social commerce. I am the co-author of the Amazon best-selling book Digital China: Working with Bloggers, Influencers, and KOLs, a Forbes contributor. Host of the China Influencer Marketing Podcast and creator of the weekly China Influencer Update newsletter, I'm also a bit of an influencer in my own right, with followings on several Chinese social media platforms, and I was formerly a professional live streamer in China with over 400,000 fans. I've been following Ruhan and Zhang Daiyi since early 2017, and have written about them several times. Just a reminder: you'll find a link to Lauren's book, that article she talks about, as well as others in our transcript, and they're usually available the week after our release on Pandaily.com/podcast.
And wow, Lauren, I really didn't realize you had so many fans in China. I wonder how long it's going to take us at TechBuzz here to get to 400,000 fans. Thanks so much, Lauren. I'm also really impressed with what you've done. For our listeners, Lauren and I have known each other for almost 10 years now. So yeah, as everyone can see, she has super relevant expertise here. So our burning question for you, Lauren, is that as we've already discussed in this episode, a lot of the criticism directed towards Ruhan is that this business of incubating influencers is incredibly difficult to scale. After all these years, they still have pretty much only Da Yi as their sole breakout star. Do you think there's something Ruhan can do to overcome this, or is it a permanent flaw of the model? I think this is a valid concern, and I do think that it will be difficult to eliminate completely, but I'm optimistic about Ruhan. A couple reasons. Um, Zhang Dai has been diversifying her brand offerings, which has allowed her to reach new audiences. During Alibaba's 2018 11.11 Shopping Festival pre-sale period, Zhang's new cosmetics brand's GMV was 11 million RMB, and more than 40% of buyers were first-time buyers of Zhang's products, who said they've never purchased her clothing, but were drawn to her cosmetics line by the massive amounts of positive reviews it was receiving on Tmall. Number two, as I mentioned in my Forbes article, while relying on a handful of influencers for a majority of the company's profit could be seen as a detriment, it's also a key to Ruhan's success. Over the past few years, several other influencer incubators have cropped up in China. However, many of them have spread themselves too thin, attempting to nurture too many bloggers at once, and have not achieved anything close to what Ruhan has with its focus on a couple of bloggers. Number three, operating a fashion retail business isn't easy to begin with, but Ruhan has created a more streamlined operating model than many traditional retail operators. Rather than trying to predict what consumers will like and then selling it to them, Ruhan uses audience preferences and purchasing behavior to guide product development from the start. Fair enough. Although GMV is really not a good indicator as we've discussed before in our episode on Singles Day, but sometimes it's the only metric we've got to work with. Anyway, I think Ruhan can probably refine its supply chain some more, as its current gross margins of 30% is far below what a comparable, although cheaper brand, Handu Yishe, has achieved at 45%. So that could be a good opportunity for growth. All right, that was Lauren Hallahan and her take on the company and the industry. Super helpful. Want to summarize for us what we learned today, Ray? Yeah. Well, first we learned that China has a very large, 15 to $25 billion, depending on who you believe, influencer economy that's currently mostly driven by e-commerce and advertising. And depending on which source you consult, one might be bigger than the other. But together, these two dwarf other monetization methods, such as tipping or virtual gifting. Right. Also note that e-commerce doesn't just mean having a store. It can also include selling goods via live streaming. In China, for influencers with large followings, like Zhang Dayi, it makes sense to create their own brand versus advertise for other brands. Ruhan created a business around this to provide a full-service solution to influencers by helping to design and manufacture the fashion or beauty product and to operate the corresponding e-commerce stores, including all the logistics and the customer service. 
This has led to spectacular success in the case of Da Yi, who uses her fans for product feedback and selection, and is generating an annualized revenue of something like seventy million dollars for Ruhan. But it also seems very difficult to replicate and scale. So far, Ruhan is still deriving about half of its revenues from this one KOL, and it's decreasing rather than increasing the number of KOLs it works with under this model. It's growing. Indeed, a platform services business where it matchmakes contracted KOLs with brands or third-party e-commerce stores. While that business only accounts for 12% of revenue so far, it seems more scalable and probably less risky than incubating KOLs, which is a hit-driven business. Well, we'll see. It's not that these brands can't become bigger than the KOL that started it, but it's hard. Daiyi has tried to scale herself by hiring two models to help with all the photography and videos, so that she's no longer the only face. And her cosmetics brand is higher end and more aspirational than some of her other stores, as she's opened it on Tmall instead of on Taobao, which has a higher bar. But this doesn't mitigate the fact that, meanwhile, short video and live streaming platforms such as Douyin, Kuaishou, and of course all of the BAT are trying their hand at influencer marketing and e-commerce. Will Ruhan be able to adapt and to take a leading position in this other pie as well? Well, I will play the bear here, as I usually do, and say that I personally think the DNA of any company is difficult to change. And I'm a big believer in product founder fit. So, with such heavy ties to e-commerce and manufacturing since inception, Ruhan is much more likely to find further success in this aspect of the business than the advertising business, which they're building completely from scratch. So, I'd personally take a cautious view. Well, we'll have to see what investors think when the company goes public very soon. Meanwhile, I'm dying to know who is the bigger deal, Kylie or Da Yi. All right, Kylie is probably a bigger deal now, but does Da Yi have a chance of overtaking her? Kylie had an estimated revenue of $360 million last year from her cosmetics business. Da Yi is definitely not at that level. But then again, she has only just one fifth the social media fans of Kylie. So on a per fan basis, they're actually. And I'm finding this surprising, by the way. They're actually comparable. I'm rooting for Da Yi, though. She seems really humble, and with her new foray into cosmetics, she's apparently studying Kylie's playbook in great detail. One last thing: if Ruhan is able to raise the up to two hundred million dollars that it's seeking for its IPO, which will definitely put it over the billion-dollar threshold, which means that Da Yi, just by virtue of her equity holdings in the company, will be worth at least a hundred and fifty million dollars. That will put her in the self-made billionaire club in Chinese R&B. Anyway, that's not bad for a 31-year-old. All right, that's all for this week, folks. Thanks for listening. As a reminder, episodes will now be available every other Friday instead of Wednesdays. We really enjoyed putting this together, as always, and we're always open to any comments or suggestions. You can find us on Twitter at the Pan Daily at Tech Buzz China, and my personal Twitter account is spelled G I N Y G I N Y, and my Twitter is spelled R U I M A. Tech Buzz China by Pan Daily is powered by the Seneca Podcast Network. 
Pandaily.com is an English language site that tells you everything about China's innovation. Our producers are Sha Wan and Kaiser Guo. Our intern is Wang Menglu, and we welcome our new intern Mindy to the team. Thanks for listening.